Hi, Sarah. How you doing today? I'm good. It's it's a little hot, but great to be in Belabor's global studios. <laughs> Belabor's mobile global studios. Um, long time, 14 week listeners. Oh my God, 14 weeks. 14 weeks. Thank you, Descent Magazine. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll know that we start off with a little bit of a news roundup. So, um... I spent yesterday morning out in front of the SUNY School of Optometry here in New York with um, a bunch of nurses from the New York State Nurses Association, hospital workers from 1199 SEIU, uh, mayoral candidates, um, and community members protesting once again the attempted closure of Long Island College Hospital. So the... Chancellor of SUNY has an office in Manhattan where actually the first vote to close the hospital, the first, as the nurses will say, illegal vote to close the hospital was held in February. And they returned to the scene of the uh, crime, so to speak, yesterday to deliver petitions from community members asking them to please stop diverting ambulances away from the hospital, which they have been doing in defiance of a court order since we last spoke about this on this program. So yesterday, um, in escalation of tactics, clearly, um, a group of nurses, hospital workers, and indeed politicians did get arrested in civil disobedience in front of the office. So there were about 100 people at the rally who were making a whole lot of noise. There were guitars. It was a lot of fun. And after a representative from SUNY came down and predictably says that they don't have any comment on what's going on at the hospital... About 10 people blocked the doors and were arrested. Those 10 people included city council member Steve Levin, who represents the district, one of the districts that is um, currently served by the hospital, and public advocate and mayoral candidate Bill de Blasio. So we'll see. Everybody's out. I spoke to some of the nurses afterwards. Um, One nurse who told me that she was terrified, but having the support of all the people who came out was really made it easier for her to go and take a rest. And Council Member Levin, who says that he's in this fight for the long haul. They have a court date on Monday to find out if SUNY will be held in contempt of court. Um, A few people commented to me that it was ironic that nurses were going to jail yesterday while SUNY is avoiding thus far any repercussions for being in contempt of court. So I will have more on this story soon. Check out Sarah's reporting on this in these times. Speaking of the law, we are recording this as we wait to see whether Washington, D.C. Mayor Vince Gray will veto or sign a bill that uh, people on all sides have taken to calling the Walmart bill in Washington, D.C. This is a bill that passed with a majority, but just short of a veto-proof majority that would require retailers of a certain size in D.C. to pay what advocates are calling a living wage of at least $12.50 an hour. This is an important front in the ongoing fight over the Walmartization of U.S. jobs. Walmart has vigorously opposed this bill, vigorously tweeted against it, more aggressively, more significantly, published an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that they would cancel at least three planned stores in D.C. if this went through. Tragic, really. And... This is, in some ways, as Doran Warren was pointing out on MSNBC this week, a replay of a similar fight that took place in Chicago in the previous decade, where, as Chris Hayes pointed out, this was one of the few times that the city council really dramatically defied Richard Daley, passed such a law that would have imposed a higher wage floor that would have affected Walmart, and Daley vetoed it. 
we'll see how history plays out here. But one angle on this that's interesting, as Dave Jameson pointed out at the Huffington Post, is that this required floor under the bill of twelve fifty an hour is not that different from what Walmart claims it pays its employees on average. Hmm. In fact, it claims it pays an average wage of close to $13 an hour. Hmm. Now, as Dave notes, that claim includes management employees and excludes the growing number of part-time or temporary workers at Walmart. It also is a claim that the company has not been forthcoming about substantiating. On the other side, labor activists have cited one estimate that puts the company's wages at $8.84 an hour, and so the question of exactly what Walmart pays on average is, of course, difficult to parse. But many workers I talked to have said that they were surprised each time they hear Walmart's claims that on average people are making more than $12 an hour there, and it's certainly striking to see the vigor with which Walmart is fighting this attempt to require them to pay everybody in D.C. at least twelve fifty. It's also interesting because it's another example of the limits of electoral democracy, political democracy, when a company is able to threaten, whether it's a country or an individual city, that it will simply pick up its toys and go elsewhere. And we often see in these kinds of fights that mayors end up behaving more deferential towards business than members of the city council. That's a dynamic that plays out over and over. And it does suggest the challenges of regulating these companies through the law at the local level, sometimes even at the national level. This is one of the fronts that I suspect we will see become more prominent in this ongoing fight, just as it was in the 2000s. The the difference is that this time, this aspect of the resistance to Walmart is married to, as we've discussed on this podcast, some very serious, robust worker resistance. We shall see. So since we last discussed the uh, phenomenon of the payroll debit card here on this podcast, the story has sort of rocketed around the world. Um, The New York Times ran a front page story on it. Um, Chris Hayes talked about it on MSNBC. And there has actually been some changes. The McDonald's franchise that um, we mentioned before that employed a woman named Natalie Gunshannon, who sued when the only option she was given to get her pay was a prepaid debit card from J.P. Morgan Chase that would only allow her to access her money from J.P. Morgan Chase without fees. The McDonald's franchise that she worked for has now said that it will offer employees paper checks and direct deposit as well as the payroll cards. Gun Shannon notably is not dropping her lawsuit. She is seeking punitive damages still. In New York, there is, as I mentioned before, a political fight over this issue as there is a bill in the state legislature that would make these cards much more popular with businesses. And the New York State AFL-CIO, among others, is really fighting this bill because, as they know, this is sort of a problem. And maybe most significantly, um, New York's Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who is maybe known to some of you as the person put in charge of a task force on the mortgage crisis that has so far not really done very much. Um, But Schneiderman has started investigating these cards as well. He sent letters to 20 major employers, including Walmart, McDonald's, um, Walgreens, that are known to use these cards, asking about their practices as the start of an investigation as to whether these actually constitute things we've talked about on this show, like wage theft. So it'll be interesting to see if this, as this issue becomes more well-known, 
if it becomes an issue um, in future organizing campaigns, if it becomes more toxic, say, for employers to use this product. Um, I spoke to somebody on Twitter after my report this week at In These Times went up, and he told me that he had worked at GameStop for a while, and usually every month there would be some money, some odd amount of money left on the card that he couldn't access. And he said when he left the job, he's probably got, you know, close to $20 on a card that is just not enough to get out of an ATM. The All In With Chris team, I think, was right to call this despicable fee. Speaking of lawsuits, the attorneys Moshe Marvit and Vincent Mersich at The Nation reported on a lawsuit by cab drivers in Chicago who are challenging their status as independent contractors. This is something we've talked about often at Belabored, what you could call the who's the boss problem. Here you have people who legally are considered to be independent contractors but are subject to heavy regulations by the government, including regulations on which neighborhoods they serve, on the conditions of their cars, who have in many senses all of the disadvantages of having a boss and none of the advantages that go with it in terms of being able to hold that boss accountable for things like whether you make the federal minimum wage or the local minimum wage per hour. And so this is an unusual lawsuit in that it's in federal court. The workers are pointing out with the help of attorney Tom Gagan, who himself has written some must-reads on labor, the workers are pointing out the various ways in which their relationship to the city of Chicago is actually very much like an employment relationship. And they're arguing that they should have the rights that go with being employed. It's hard to tell whether this lawsuit has any chance. The authors do point out that it survived an initial motion to dismiss it. And so we're going to get to watch this continue to wind through. But it's an interesting legal challenge to what's becoming our independently contracted economy at a moment when we see workers also resisting in other ways. We've talked before about the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, where workers, while legally being independent contractors, have, through going on strike, developed a great deal of power and then used the Taxi Licensing Commission, the regulatory commission, as a place to have something that's like a de facto form of bargaining. So we'll be watching where this goes. Now how you feel? CEOs getting mega paid while you barely making minimum wage. The first time I put that pin to a page when I realized I couldn't be the government slave. I got the same attitude. At this point, we turn to what loyal belabored listeners may know is our new intermittent segment. You never know when it's going to pop up. Our explainer segment. This week we're talking about retaliation. We'd urge you once again to tweet at DissentMag, tweet with the hashtag Belabor to suggest what you would like us to explain, and perhaps go back still for free and check out our previous explainer on wage theft. So this week, Sarah, to kick it off, what do we mean in a labor context when we say retaliation? So I really wanted to do this explainer because I was at a um, an event or a rally outside of a a restaurant that was being targeted by the Restaurant Opportunity Center once upon a time, not that long ago. And they were handing out flyers outside to people who walked by, to people who were going into the restaurant that were saying, end retaliation. And I was just like, you know, I mean, this is great. This is a great picket. This is a, These are great flyers. They don't explain what that means. It just is a word. So when we, when we say retaliation, we mean that workers are facing some sort of punishment on the job for 
having complained about their working conditions, having attempted to organize, having perhaps filed a lawsuit, basically having put up any sort of a fuss about the way that they are treated on the job. So, Josh, we know that retaliation is illegal in many cases, but what kinds of activities is it illegal to retaliate against workers for? Well, one set of retaliation protections that were in the news recently when the Supreme Court watered them down, is the set of protections under the Civil Rights Act for people who bring complaints. And indeed, in other areas of law, also we see protections for whistleblowers that you shouldn't be retaliated against for exercising your right to file a lawsuit or to blow the whistle on something that's wrong. Or perhaps leak some documents? Perhaps. (laughs) The protected activity that we talk about the most often on this podcast is the kinds of activism that are protected under the National Labor Relations Act, the New Deal law that governs most private sector work. And so the jurisprudence there that's developed protects what's called protected concerted activity, which in broad strokes is collective action designed to improve conditions on the job. So in a series of cases over the years, This has been defined to generally mean collective action, although there are cases where an individual takes an action that's related to or designed to instigate collective action that might still be protected. It's been found that in certain cases, if what you do is offensive enough, it might be excluded from protection. But the judges through the years have been clear that, generally speaking, if what you do is related to what is happening on your job and your effort to improve it, and it's in some sense collective, then your boss is not supposed to be able to squash it. I wrote a couple pieces for Slate about this, how this applies to Facebook postings. So in general, we associate this protection with things like going in a group to confront your manager about an issue, or going out on strike, or participating in a rally. It in some cases, can even protect you for activism you take during the workday. If a group of workers goes briefly while they're on the clock to confront their manager, they may be protected. But it also extends to workers who not only don't have a union, but aren't even trying to form a union, but are just otherwise trying to improve their job. And to things like what you post on Facebook. So in a set of cases that came out recently, the Labor Board made clear that Having a conversation with your coworkers where you complain about your job on Facebook, if there's sufficient connection to your working conditions and potentially improving them or protecting yourself against them becoming worse, can be protected. And this is interesting in part because many Americans assume they have a First Amendment right to speak freely outside of their job without being fired. And generally speaking, you don't. The First Amendment doesn't stop your boss if you're in the private sector from squashing you for what you say outside of work, whether it's about a candidate that you have a bumper sticker for on your car, or even in one case, volunteering at a clinic with people with HIV, those kinds of things, you're not protected from being fired for by the First Amendment. But you can be protected for the conversations you have outside of work if they are considered some kind of concerted activity connected to the workplace. It's interesting. We we discussed with uh, Jake Bloomgart not that long ago the fact that you basically have no rights at work, um, that this is an ongoing problem in America, that unless you have a union contract, um, 
you really can be fired for just about anything. So, I mean, when we talk about retaliation, and particularly in terms of being fired for something, what's interesting is this is one of the few things that is, is actually protected by the law. That's right. So speaking of being fired, Sarah, what kinds of punishment count as retaliation? So we've talked about being fired, but that's certainly not the only thing that workers face when they are um, retaliated against. So we see people being demoted, people having their schedules changed or having hours taken away. Um, I remember one of the workers, uh, Trevon Shim, that I spoke to um, during the first fast food strike, who had lost his home in Hurricane Sandy and had taken some time off of work to um, basically to get his life together. And when he came back in, his hours were cut. Now, because he had taken time off and not made a specific complaint because this was not done to him because of striking, this was not considered specifically to be retaliation. But in many cases, that's something that will happen to you instead of being outright fired, which is a lot easier to prove is retaliation. They can simply cut back your hours and bosses can say that this is, well, we just don't need as many people. We're overstaffed right now. We're not very busy. And that's much harder to prove. Um, Of course, there's always the ever pleasant tactic of being harassed on the job, of having your manager make your life a living hell because you complain to them once or you complain to somebody else once. Again, this is something that, sadly, bosses have every right to do most of the time. And the only right that we have under most law is to take it somewhere else. Yeah. So, basically, almost anything your boss can think of to do to torture you is legal unless it's punishment directly for some sort of, again, concerted activity or some form of whistleblowing. One of the big questions is always... What about firing or permanently replacing, as they say, um, striking workers? Is that also protected? So in many cases, your right to collective action, to take collective action without being punished, extends to going on strike. However, there, there are several variables that come into play. First, union members who are in a union contract, in most union contracts, you contract away your right to go out on strike for the duration of the contract. That is, in part, what the company gets in exchange for whatever is in the contract is some assurance that the workers can't legally go on strike during the contract. Now, when the contract expires, that's a different story, and that is often when we see workers going on strike as part of a contract fight. For non-union workers, there is, generally speaking, a right for workers collectively to go out on strike in order to improve their working conditions without getting fired for it. However, how strong that right is and whether it applies depends on what kind of strike it is. So there are some strikes that are considered to be unprotected, in which case you don't have the same kind of legal protection. That includes what are called intermittent strikes, situations where you keep going out on strike and coming back and causing a great deal of disruption by being on strike one day and off strike the next. Obviously, it is a matter for argument exactly when that applies. There are also reduced protections for what's called recognitional picketing. This is an issue that came up in the fight at Walmart, was Walmart's contention that these workers going out on strike before Black Friday and on Black Friday were really doing it in order to try to force Walmart to 
agree to collective bargaining. And as we've talked about on the podcast, there are good reasons, given how broken the government process for winning collective bargaining is, that unions resort to all kinds of tactics to try to get companies to, quote-unquote, voluntarily stop union busting. But the law very specifically restricts the right of workers to engage in pickets that are specifically dedicated to winning collective bargaining, winning union recognition rights. And that's why you'll also often see organizers and workers in leaflets and so forth make a main point of saying, well, we're fighting for a fair process, or we're fighting for safety, or we're fighting against illegal retaliation that's taken place. That brings us to the most protected kind of strike, which is an unfair labor practices strike. That's when workers are going out on strike in protest of violations of the law. So this can become somewhat circular when you're asking, well, (laughs) can these workers be retaliated against? Can they be permanently replaced? Well, they argue they can't because the reason they went out on strike was because of prior retaliation that often happened. And so there can be an Escher painting of alleged retaliation that can take place here. The category of an unfair labor practices strike is not just something you claim for yourself. Ultimately, it would be the labor board that would determine, well, was that the motivation here or not? And then in the middle, there are various strikes where people are devoted to trying to improve their working conditions. Generally speaking, when a group of workers walks off the job together, and it's not about retaliation, but it's also not an attempt to force unionization, those workers legally generally can't be fired, but they can be so-called permanently replaced. And this is arguably the cancer at the heart of legal protection for people who go on strike, is permanently replacing people. In other words, not telling them they're being punished or disciplined, but bringing in other people to do their job for them, and then not letting them come back to work when they're done being on strike, is not considered in and of itself retaliation under the law. And so you and your coworkers may band together to go on strike over outrageous conditions at work, and your boss may say, that's fine. You took part in this action. We're not going to give you so much as a verbal warning but you don't have a job anymore because somebody else is doing it now. And this issue of permanent replacement of strikers in part is why in the fast food and Walmart and federally contracted and target strikes that we've mentioned on this podcast before, we often see organizers making a point of saying they're fighting specifically against retaliation because they want to prevent companies from having a pretense to do this permanent replacement. It's also something that has at times been thought of as a political issue in that up until 2012 through 2008, it was in the platform of the Democratic Party that permanent replacement of strikers should be banned. Nonetheless, it's not something that we heard a lot of political discussion about in Weird how that the works. 2000s. It's not even something that's in that platform anymore. Weird how that works. So Sarah, if retaliation per se is illegal, why does it happen so often? I mean, largely, the biggest problem is, like we said, that you have basically very few rights at work. Um, And so it can be very difficult to prove that the thing you are being punished for is a thing that is actually protected under the law. 
I spoke with a worker who was organizing with the Laundry Workers Center at a place called Dishes in New York. I spoke about this briefly on the show before. His name was Joshua. He'd been there for 12 years. He had been a model employee. He had trained most of the other employees who were currently working there. And after, actually after a lawsuit that had claimed that the place was not paying people overtime, um, the workers said that they were called into a meeting where they had to sign a piece of paper that said they would be paid overtime now, but their regular wages were being cut. So Joshua refused to sign this, and he wrote his own letter to his managers and said, I am offended. I've worked for you for 12 years. I can't believe you're cutting my wages. Um, will you also give us a letter to sign that says we weren't paid overtime for 12 years? And he was fired. And he says he was a model employee and if they didn't like how he worked, why did they keep him for 12 years and have him train all of their workers? Um, but even in his case, it's very hard to prove that that was specifically retaliation, even though it sounds to me, to you, to everybody who's listening to this, like it's pretty clear. The other problem is that the legal process is terrible. The legal process takes forever, right? These workers at Dishes are in the midst of legal proceedings against their employer, but those legal proceedings take a long time. Long time. And meanwhile, these are people who need jobs. And so often, specifically, particularly when you get fired, you just have to go out and find another job. Um, so as the attorneys are working on their lawsuit against Dishes, um, the workers are still organizing and, um, bringing in community members, holding protests, doing flyering campaigns, um, as a way to put more pressure on their employer to reinstate the workers who have been fired. Joshua and other workers have been fired because it's just really hard to get these issues fixed in court. It's very obvious in the case of a firing. It's much more complicated when you're talking about your manager treating you differently, your schedule being cut, your hours being cut a little bit every week, you suddenly being scheduled on Saturday nights when you would like to have, you know, a life. Those are things that are very hard to prove because the business can almost always claim that there's another reason for doing it. So I think last week on the podcast, we actually mentioned, or Josh actually mentioned, the um, Alan Grayson had a bill about retaliation going forward. And uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit for us, Josh? What would that do? So this bill, this presumably doomed bill from a legislative standpoint, would address many of the longtime grievances that <clears throat> academics and advocates and activists who are concerned about these issues have had about the process that Sarah just described. So among its provisions, this bill would let workers themselves, without consent from the labor board, pursue federal court injunctions to expedite their cases. It would offer increased damages, uh, what are called treble or triple damages in some cases. It would perhaps most significantly offer a private right of action, where, as under civil rights law, workers would still have the option of going through the labor board process, but they could separately sue their boss. And that, as one expert pointed out to me, has underappreciated benefits, like being able to force discovery hearings. That There's a much broader right to discovery where you can ask questions about the anti-union campaign than what exists under the labor board process. It also would allow workers to make their boss individually culpable. This could mean an individual manager. This could mean the CEO of the company. And while, to the disappointment of some, these would be civil penalties and not 
criminal penalties. It would mean, and when I asked Congressman Grayson, he was clear that this could indeed be anyone from a manager to to a CEO. It would mean real skin in the game for anyone who's carrying out what could be illegal retaliation. And it would go so far as to ban the company from paying the damages that would be assessed. And so if you're an individual manager at a company and you're given an order that might seem legally suspect, you would have lots more reason to think twice before carrying it out than you do under the current legal regime. So, Sarah, given the weakness of the labor board process, how are labor groups and unions and workers fighting back or discouraging retaliation? So one of my favorite stories is when I think actually you wrote about at Salon about the day after the first fast food strike. Um, One of the workers who had been out on strike went back into her job at Wendy's on Fulton Mall in Brooklyn, and she was told that she was fired. And she called her organizer. And how many people showed up again? About a fifth. I don't remember. Do you remember? Enough enough to substantially fill up the Wendy's, I believe. Quite a few, including a, Cong- or a city council member, not congressman yet, but Jamani, if you're listening, we're counting on you. Um, city council member Jamani Williams, who apparently, according to an organizer, rolled up in his car to the curb, jumped out, threw his keys to the organizer who was standing there, and rushed inside to join the protest. Um, which, when the cops came, they then took outside to the street. So you have members of the city council, organizers, people from the Working Families Party, um, community members, other striking workers, raising hell in and outside of the store until the manager agreed to sit down with the worker and give her her job back. Um, So fun things like that, putting pressure on the company directly, on the boss directly, um, making it clear that there will be a penalty to your bottom line if you are caught doing these things to the workers. The protest that I mentioned at the beginning was um, outside of the Capitol Grill in New York City. The Restaurant Opportunity Center were picketing outside during the dinner rush and handing out flyers, as I said, condemning retaliation. And they can now give them a link to this podcast if they want people to know all about retaliation. These are tactics that work in some sense in that they can have immediate results, immediate payoff. You can get a worker back to their job. Um, Trevon, the worker who had his hours cut earlier, um, had gone on strike. And then after the strike, he had his hours reinstated as well. And one of my favorite comments was actually from Pamela Flood, who said that after the strike, her boss started calling her Ms. Flood and not Pamela. But in any case, as we said, these kinds of actions have... Been, they have paid off in immediate results. In other cases, um, you've talked about Walmart workers getting fired. Do you have actually any specific info on what they have done to get those workers reinstated? So what we've seen in this latest round of retaliation, which allegedly includes as many as 60 employees who took action in June and have since been disciplined, everything from write-ups to people being fired, is... Actions targeting Marissa Meyer, the head of Yahoo who's on Walmart's board, including, like I reported at the Nation, both workers being at Yahoo headquarters and getting arrested there. Indeed, one of the then current employees who was on the leave of absence who, absence, who was arrested there, has since been one of the workers additionally fired. And then in addition, workers were in the Yahoo shareholder meeting asking Marissa Meyer questions directly. We've also seen Protests ranging from a delegation where a group of workers went into 
a store with community members to express outrage to a rally that took place in Southern California. We have not so far seen anything as aggressive as a nationally coordinated strike in response to what is quite clearly the most dramatic alleged retaliation at Walmart since the shutdown of a store in Quebec after workers there in 2005 won collective bargaining rights. That would be the ultimate retaliation, huh? Shutting down the whole store. And yet it happens. But in terms of the workers who were fired, have they any of them been reinstated or are they... In the past, there are workers who have been terminated at Walmart or in the Walmart supply chain who've been reinstated. In, we saw dramatically in Elwood, Illinois, in Walmart's largest distribution center, four workers who were fired allegedly in a, for, as retaliation and were all reinstated after a strike there. Mm-hmm. At least one of those workers, though, was since fired again in another act of alleged retaliation. There is also, for example, a case where a Walmart employee was reinstated following charges being filed by the labor board. But in this latest round of retaliation that's being alleged by organizers, I'm not aware of any of that retaliation having been reversed to this point. Ah, fun, fun, fun. So it sounds like we need to uh, call your congressman and get them to back Alan Grayson's bill, guys. This has been a latest explainer from Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. Please do tweet at us with more topics you'd like explained or parsed or... Uh, theorized or autopsied <laughs> this brings us to what long time 14 week listeners will know is the ending of the podcast where we say arg I wish I had written that so on this hot humid day Sarah if all that you had to cool yourself off was chill icy jealousy and resentment about something that was written by someone else, what would that thing be? You know, I feel sort of strange about saying that I wish I'd written this piece this week because I don't particularly want to have had the experiences that uh, Francesca Bori writes about in this piece called Woman's Work at the Columbia Journalism Review. So she is a freelance journalist who is currently in Syria. She's Italian and she's writing for the equivalent of $70 a freelance piece from a war zone. She writes that she cannot afford fixers or even a taxi. Um, it's a wonderful, depressing piece about what it's like to be a war reporter, what it's like to be a woman war reporter. She writes that people always come to her and say, this is no place for a woman. And she looks at them and says, this is no place for anyone. But mostly it's a piece about being a freelancer, about the pressures that people put on you when you are reporting from a war zone. People expect the stories to be about blood. She writes of having written a 6,000 word feature story that looked into the causes of the conflict in Syria. Perhaps you haven't read too many stories about the causes of the conflict in Syria. And like me, you are still trying to figure out exactly what is going on. Um, And editors didn't want it because nobody died. And again, all of this for $70 a story for no healthcare protections, no nothing. And this is this is an extreme case, certainly. Um, Most of us broke freelancers are not currently running around in war zones. But This is more or less the state of journalism these days. And 
sometimes extreme cases, as we know when we're talking about labor issues, are useful to draw attention to an ongoing problem, which is that we are expected to do more and more work for less and less money. Of course, this piece appeals to me because I'm a journalist and I've been freelancing for the last eight months, but also because it's a story about what being a woman in places where women are not expected to be is about. Again, it's called Woman's Work, and it is at the Columbia Journalism Review. And as always, we will post a link to it on the Descent website. So, Josh. I want to highlight the work of Lee Fong, a truly outstanding investigative journalist at The Nation, who this week has been looking into the Walmart Gap, Olympia Snow, George Mitchell-backed quote-unquote, alternative fire and building safety plan for Bangladesh. We've talked previously on this podcast about the significance of the labor and European brand-backed agreement, why advocates are hopeful that that actually will make a difference in labor standards and workers' ability to be their own auditors in Bangladesh. The same cannot be said for this deal, but in Lee's latest piece, U.S. Retailers Launch Lobby Blitz to Sell Weak Bangladesh Safety Plan, he not only looks at the issues with the content of the deal, but also the way it's being sold. In this piece, and a prior one this week, he notes donations that he turned up from Walmart to the Bipartisan Policy Center, donations from Walmart lobbying groups to the Bipartisan Policy Center, which has this imperator of retired senators, elder statesmen, distance from partisanship, and notes how Walmart and The Gap are trading on that brand while questioning whether that brand of independence and high-minded inquiry is really deserved. He reports the news of a private briefing in the Capitol where people involved in this plan were trying to win over members of Congress to get behind it. He looks at the various intersections of personalities and interests involved in pushing this plan, which activists in Bangladesh and labor groups in the United States have argued does not deserve the kind of friendly press attention that in some cases it's gotten. That brings us to the end of episode 14, brought to you as always by our truly amazing producer, Natasha Lewis. We thank Natasha. We have, if you love our podcast, perhaps you would like to come see both of us as we are hitting the road in the next week or so. Josh, why don't you? On July 25th, I will be at a, an event sponsored by Descent, as well as the Kalmanowitz Initiative at Georgetown and the National Guest Worker Alliance. We'll be talking about my Descent piece, which we've talked about on the podcast, Guest Workers as Bellwether. And I'll be on a panel with guest worker whistleblowers, as well as NGA's director, Socket Sony, the terrific Rutgers professor, Janice Fine, as well as guests to be announced. And we'll be talking about the intersection of guest worker labor struggles, immigration reform, and what is happening to work in the United States. That discussion will be at 6 p.m. on Thursday, July 25th, and we would really love to see any belabored listeners or even belabored skeptics there. And next Thursday, I will be in Chicago once again, this time for... Again? Again! Going back to Chicago. It's because I'm jealous of your teacher's union. No, it's because I'm going to be doing a workshop with Delia Jean talking about 
life and labor. Um, it's specifically, we're doing a workshop on the service industry, emotional labor, and gender. Um, this will be at 5.30 p.m. at a gallery. We will put all of the fun details, once again, up at the website. It's free, and we'll be making art. So do come join us if you are in Chicago on the 18th. I have cool, icy envy of any Chicago belabored listeners who get to attend that event. <laughs> and with that, we will see you next week. Stay cool. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, hell no, we can't go. Society has enslaved me and it's crazy because daily it gets harder.